Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday evening. It's about 16 minutes to 8. It's March the 19th, 1981, and thus far, this episode of Top of the Pops has been a morbid carousel of cat shit. Dad Synth, Violent Rupert the Bear, the return of the Top of the Pops Orchestra, and we're still recovering from being forced to contemplate the denim gusset of Shaking Stevens. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters, and welcome to the final part of Chart Music 71. I'm Al Needham, they're Neil Kulkarni and Taylor Parks, and we are rejoining the episode in progress. Come on, 1981, you're better than this! Entry to Eurovision, Max Spears, and making your mind up. Good luck to them. Okay, their number one in Germany at the moment is Fade to Grey, which is a single released before this in Britain. It's Visage, a mind of a toy. As Powell, off-camera, wishes Bucksfizz the best of British, we're immediately catapulted into the glossy futurescape of now as he introduces us to the current occupants of the very summit of Poppenberg, Visage with Mind of a Toy. Born in Newbridge, Caffilly, in 1959, Stephen Harrington was the son of a former paratrooper-turned-seaside cafe mogul who spent his teenage years as a Bowie youth and Northern Soul disciple who caught on to punk very early due to his many weekend visits to London and first came to public attention when his photo appeared in the Western Mail with the headline, Wales's First Punk. After seeing the Sex Pistols at their gig in Cafile, which resulted in every pub in the area being boarded up and local religious nutters holding a protest in the car park, Harrington, who was now calling himself Steve Strange, linked up with Glenn Matlock for a drink afterwards, which would have long-term implications. That Pistols gig inspired Strange to start organising punk gigs in Wales, where he got to know Billy Idol and Jean-Jacques Burnell, which inspired him to relocate to London in 1977. 
Desperate to get in on the music scene, he was roped into an extremely loose collective involving Sue Catwoman, Topper Hedden and Chrissy Hind, which immediately made a splash in the tabloids. Article in the Sunday Mirror dated January the 8th, 1978. Why must they be so cruel? <laughs> a new rock group called the Moors Murderers have recorded a number called Free Myra Hindley. <laughs> The disc is a plea by the members of the band for the release of the infamous murderess. The man behind the record is Dave Goodman, who claims to have produced records for the Sex Pistols. The lead singer and guitarist calls himself Steve Brader. <laughs> After Ian Brader, Myra Hindley's lover and accomplice in the horrific Morse killings, the group refused to be photographed unless their faces are masked with hoods or plastic bags. Leader Brady said last night the least a criminal sentence to life can expect is consideration for parole tut, tut, tut. did somebody interview they would say uh, so do you really mean this or is it just a publicity stunt yes <laughs> <laughs> Although the single was never released, the experience scared him off a music career for a bit, although he did fill in as a frontman of a Liverpool band called The Photons. But when Matlock's new band, The Rich Kids, got a record deal, he started working in their London office, where he teamed up with the band's drummer, Rusty Egan, to start up an assortment of Bowie and Roxy music nights at a club called Soho called Billy's in mid-1978. With strange work in the door to keep people who weren't getting into the dress-up spirit away and Egan on the decks. By early 1979, the club nights were becoming so successful that Strange was offered a residency at the Blitz Club in Covent Garden, which was located between two major art colleges and became a magnet for young designers and the future peacocks of pop, including Boy George, Marilyn, AZ Fantasia, Spandau Ballet and Martin Degville, to name but a few. While the club harvested a swathe of media attention, particularly when it was reported that Strange had barred Mick Jagger out due to the place being rammed out, Strange was approached by Midjour, keyboard player of the rich kids, who told him that the band were on the verge of splitting up due to musical differences, EMI owed him a watch of studio time, and he wanted to try something new and electronic. He invited him and Egan to work on a demo together which resulted in Visage, and the single Tar, which was put out on Radar Records in 1979, but failed to chart. Undeterred, the trio pulled in Billy Curry of Ultravox, who would invite her to replace John Fox as the frontman of the band very soon after, and John McGeoch, Dave Formula and Barry Adamson of Magazine. They set to work recording an LP with Martin Russian, but their new label Polydor didn't know what to make of it and left it on the shelf for six months, eventually putting it out in November of 1980, along with the lead-off single Fade to Grey. It took a month for it to enter the chart at number 68, but with the help of a video director by Godley and Cream, it began a seven-week cruise all the way up to number eight over here last month and number one in Switzerland and West Germany at the moment. 
With Fade to Grey still in the charts at number 40, this follow-up immediately became a new entry at number 32, and this week it's gone up eight places to number 24. So here is the video, once again directed by Godly and Cream, and fucking yes! Finally, 1981 is here, and finally Steve Strange comes into play. Mm. It actually feels like the first time in the episode yeah. where we're witnessing something that, that could not have happened in the 70s. Exactly. And it also feels like the diametric opposite of Phil Collins. Very much so. I like this song a lot. Mm. It's probably my second favourite visage after Night Train and just better for me than, than Fate of Grey. Mm. It's an interesting time, this, because I don't think music journalists as yet in early 81 are so convinced of new pop let alone the futurists or the new romantics Mm. that they're bold enough to say it's okay for Steve Strange to kind of look amazing and be incredibly stylish every interview I've read in 80 and 81 he's having to fend off these very sort of rockist questions about superficiality about not having Mm. any substance to it um You know, it's very much still assumed that if you self-create yourself in fashion or style, there's got to be this hollowness inside. Mm. Whereas, um, you know, I, I'd argue quite the opposite. Yeah. And, you know, actually, there's just as much pop artifice in Phil Collins' dressed-downness as there is in Stranger's dressed-upness. Mm. Um, but the cut of his jib, man, watching this... Um, age date watching this amazing video and, and yeah. don't forget it also it also needs remembering the retrospective um way people look at times as if like everyone knew what the new romantics were or, it, or it's existed it might have done in london mm. out in the sticks new romantic was just one lyric in a, in a Duran song to be honest mm. with you you know i mean they did get a lot of tabloid attention yeah so but, it was known about but you didn't see any in the street no you certainly didn't see any at school no no no. I mean, this is this weird in-between period, really, where, where we find this visage video. It's in between the release of Fate of Grey and basically Spandau and Duran are going to eventually have a, a victory in this entire sphere, really. They're going to win. Mm. But what's really noticeable at this time when New Romantic, like I said, it hadn't really been coined for most of us. What was thrilling about Visage as a little kid was that even... I mean, you'd been aware of craft work, maybe, but, you know, you could not mm. visualise how this music was being made. Even with Human League, mm. you could see guys, the boring-looking guys, in the background doing stuff. But whenever you caught Visage on the telly, it was always a video... Or just strange, just, you know, Steve, basically. So you had to kind of mm. imagine the making of this music. So so that that helped. And this video is fucking fantastic. Yeah, a proper music video. You know, none of the band pretending to play a gig or the band having fun in the studio bollocks here. This is pure concept. And the kind of poncing about that's going to set the playground ablaze tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. Because Visage are pretty much the first band of the era who bring out a new video rather than a new single. Yeah. the early 80s wasn't all fun and games no i really would like to like this but to me it's like if you took the early 80s ground them down into meal fed it to a diseased hog waited for it to pass through his polyp-ridden digestive system (laughs) and then when it emerged froze that liquid shit into the shape of a giant hammer and then a dull bewildered farmhand walked by picked up the frozen pig shit hammer and smashed you in the temple with it this is that intense level of early 80s that you see in old episodes of riverside oh yes the bbc youth 
magazine show of the time of which no caricature is possible because the early 80s are already being pushed to the absolute conceptual limit of early 80s-ness and satire expires in the resulting vacuum Mm. i mean if this track had a composer credit of curtis goodall it wouldn't look any different and it would only sound better Possibly a niche reference there, but fuck it. Let's use what freedoms we have remaining. And I just, I can't help thinking, for all the great things about punk and post-punk, this is what happens when deeply untalented people are given the means to express themselves. Mm. You know, it's better than nothing, but it's worse than anything good. Mm. You know, Midure and Rusty Egan, the swan's legs thrashing away beneath the still water here. <laughs> I mean, fuck it now. I just can't can't go with it he looks like you know the supposedly cursed painting of the crying boy yes (laughs) (laughs) and in fact everyone who bought a copy of mind of a toy by visage did soon find their house burning down (laughs) and in the charred ruins right there in the middle of what used to be the front room they found the seven inch of this record completely (laughs) untouched by the fire but there was nothing supernatural about it um it turned out those fires were started by uh, music lovers so <laughs> fair's fair and the reason the record didn't burn is, is that it was shit <laughs> all of that just sounds great though to me the 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 pig shit hammer etc <laughs> yeah as jimmy tarbuck would say we, we've got a difference of opinion here we're, we're going to have to agree to disagree <laughs> but I no, it sounds great to me too. That's what annoys me about this record. Mm. I should be enjoying it. Um, yeah, I should yeah, certainly yeah, yeah. be enjoying the video. And I do think it's a mostly positive mark of the time that although these people must, at some level, be at least peripherally aware of their own mediocrity, they still dress up this way and they still call themselves, you know, Ian Interesting and construct a... a, a, Ian Interesting, I'd buy his records. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fantasy self, however second hand it looks because the notion still prevails that pop stars should be something other than ordinary and if Mm. you can't achieve that naturally you should force it which is the complete opposite of what it's like now obviously where being an identical middle-class kid in a jumper is a selling point because now it's a desperate market and so Mm. the trick is not to alienate anyone yeah and so this is a lot better than that because at least it's funny Mm. and at least it's umbilically connected to something which was sort of kind of countercultural, right but the trouble is it's one thing to say that pop is better when it's a bit silly and overdressed and a bit preposterous and that's usually true but Mm. i just think if a record is in my subjective opinion as crappy as this one it breaks the spell and suddenly you're just looking at some bloke standing there in makeup thick enough to stop a bullet uh, dressed like Adrian Headley. And, you know, he neither looks good enough to legitimise that or surprising or weird enough to make looking good irrelevant. And that's the fine line between glorious and ludicrous. But you're kind of witnessing this in isolation when you say that. I mean, in the context of this episode, it's a moment. I mean, there's this sense yeah, you get. it is. When you're reading the press about strange, uh, you know, early 80s stuff, it's kind of, it's a very London-based press, and consequently they see him as running this club night, this new movement. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, out here in the sticks, of course, you know, especially age date, we're not cognizant of that. 
that we just see him as this weird figure. He'd crop up on the telly now and then, and in between times, you know, presumably climb into a crypt until being awakened again. Um, mm. If New Romantic History is all about the way club culture feeds into and is kind of fed on by the music business, that's fine. But for us underagers, much as we clung to, say, two-tone by what we could get hold of, i.e. Harrington's maybe, you know, embraces, mm. we hung on to something like Visage. Well, I certainly did anyway. Sort of purely on videos like this, really. They were exciting yeah. things in the middle of quite a bland period for Top of the Pops. I mean, if this single mm. had come out a couple of years before... Like a lot of electronic pop, it wouldn't really have been seen as a change in direction for British music. It would have been seen as Newmanoid, you know. But now yeah. that yeah. now that Newman's moment has faintly passed and Steve Stranger's becoming known, I, I, I think it hits that much harder. And, it, and the video's fantastic. It's kind of maddening that it's cut short yeah. in this episode of Top of the Pops. Because, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, you don't forget what we've been through, you know. I mean, I love to look fizz, but we've been through Phil Collins and we've been through The Who. And, and you know, we want something that I'm not saying we're, we're there thirsting for modernity or something, but we, we want something to look at, you know. And we yeah. certainly did not get that with fucking Dave Stewart and Colin Blunstone. Yeah, or, this is or, true. You know, so yeah, I, th- I think it's important to remember that at this point in this rather bland episode, it does feel like something new and exciting. I think. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, as we all know, chaps, the last video featured Steve Strange having a snake painted on his arm that bit him in his own face. So following that up is going to be a big ass. So, you know, let's see how he gets on. And the first thing we notice is we're hit with the sight of a gilt mirror frame on a blue background on a blue wall displaying a blue staircase. It's a godly and crew have clearly been given a proper budget this time because, you know, there's a proper glossy sheen to this mm. that would have stood out even on 1981 crappy tellies. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like, it, I'm not saying it births MTV or anything, but it'd sit nicely with all the other big budget videos at the time. And then a load of teddy bears tumble down the stairs, and then we're confronted by Strange of the Clock, <laughs> which is a terrifying big grandfather <laughs> clock with Steve Strange's own face, which has taken Homer Simpson's makeup gun full in the face, and <laughs> with, with an arm for a pendulum. That's fucking mental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, while we're still trying to process that, we're confronted by a puppet of Steve Strange, some kids dressed as Steve Strange, who was in his little Lord Fauntleroy outfit, and then my favourite bit, which was massive licorice all sorts tumbling down the stairs, so yeah. the viewer can imagine themselves sitting at the bottom with their mouths wide open, <laughs> going slew. <laughs> Did you notice there were no pink ones? Was that a trademark thing, I wonder? Oh. oh. You see, the pink ones would be the ones I would have been. Well, I hate fucking yeah. licorice all sorts. So yeah, I'm, I'm like, like you, Neil. The pink ones are my absolute favourite. I, I liked licorice all sorts, but I didn't like licorice. So right. I would just nibble the good bits off and just lob the licorice <laughs> in the ashtray, which used yeah, to yeah. piss me mum off no end. <laughs> but, I mean, what should have happened was Steve Strange pitching up as Bertie Bassett. <laughs> because, you know, after all, he is Britain's greatest asset. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get a really creepy bit where Strange confronts his own puppet who kind of like sneaks off in fast motion and then he rides a rocking horse. Mm. He, he's essentially picked up 1981 and he's battering us around the head with it. Yeah, yeah, a real sense in this of the sort of horror of puppetry. <laughs> and, and crucially, it's not something that's so out of the ordinary. I mean, this was stuff you might have had in your own home, the teddies, the jack-in-the-box, the rocking mm. horse. It very much reminds me of uh, the sort of infamous 
disturbing sequence in Dario Argento's Profundo Russo mm. with a puppet. And also the final, uh, you know, which we all know, the Herbert Lom sequence in Asylum as well yeah. also came to mind. I mean, what a shame that he didn't have Sooty and Sweep and Sue playing The Sims, <laughs> man. That would have been perfect. That would have taken the edge off it a little bit. I mean, at the time, I would have taken right against this because it wasn't real kids' issues. Mm, and it immediately mm. became the forgotten follow-up to Fade to Grey. Mm. But when it came on, when I revisited for this episode, I did fucking go, yes, because, you know, now I've grown up, I can really appreciate a good ponce about. And it's not like I've paid for the making of the video. So, yeah, fuck it, have this on. <laughs> what it reminded me of was a few months ago when Sam Smith, one of the most boring pop stars, even even in this shitty period of music, when he turns up at the Brit Awards looking like a prostate stimulator and, you know, you immediately got all the usual twats moaning on about it. Well, I was thinking, oh, fucking hell, he's actually done something interesting for once. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, in, in thin, gruelish times, you know, these sort of slim pickings, they're, they're there mm. to be, yeah, grabbed at. And that underlying theme of the lyrics, I should say, that, you know, I love it discarded like a toy. I think it works. It's sort of strong enough to be understandable by mm. grown-ups and kids. So, yeah. I mean, I actually had a distinct sensory memory of this coming on in this episode and suddenly feeling happy Top of the Pops was on, where I hadn't for sort of the past half an hour, to be honest mm. with you. I consulted Blitzed, the autobiography of Steve Strange, in the hope of finding out something about the making of the video, but all I got was him describing what the video is, which I've just done, so that's mm. no use to anyone. <laughs> but what he does say is... Maybe the video was too effective. It was banned by Top of the Pops because they said it was frightening for children. Well, mm, hand going to chin there. Uh. When a hand goes to a chin. <laughs> Strange has this habit, I should say, you know, of, of mis not, is it misremembering? <laughs> I don't know whether you call it. Because, you know, the Moore's murderous thing. I mean, you know, in interviews, he's saying, I never knew mm. anything about that. You know, um, I turned up. I didn't know that they were going to call the band this. But that, that's clearly not the case, is it? No. Um, it's after the event correction of history. And I suspect that mm. bit is as well. Yeah, I changed my name in tribute to Liam Brady. Yes. <laughs> Imagine my surprise. When, uh, I, know, I mean, look, I'll, I'll grant you that this is not boring to look well, at. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. you know, which is the first hurdle overcome. You know, do you like any visage? Well, I like Fate to Grey. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. tend to think they should have left it at that. Really, mm. do you know what I mean? It's like it's just <laughs> look it, because if you could, if you do one single, you can sail on the novelty of it and the the sort of initial shock of what you look like. But after that, you kind of got to sort of do some music. You mm. know what I mean? And to mm. me, this mm. is just another illustration of the axiom that nobody who ever took david bowie as their primary influence ever made mm. really good music it never happened mm. loads of people are taking bits from david bowie and made it work but nobody ever took him as their main central inspiration and survived artistically because you can't mm. take most of that stuff and use it yourself because it was fine-tuned for him yeah. and his own strengths mm. and weaknesses and if you do it yourself you're going to be fundamentally second rate, not just because you're an original, but because you're not David Bowie. And this is the difference between being a postmodern artist who steals and adapts and thus mm. forges a true expression of themselves mm. as a, a human being adrift in a culture of other people's ideas and just being a cunt in a silly hat, <laughs> just making an <laughs> exhibition of yourself. 
but you're saying you're saying that being a cunt and the silly hat in a way it, it, I, I know exactly what you mean because it's like david bowie's definitively postmodern so if you're going to be postmodern about somebody postmodern the dilution gets too thin yeah. doesn't it yeah. yes yeah yeah i know what you mean um, but I, I i still think visage have something um and actually you know what it is i i'm not saying these are great songs but they they i think it's a kid thing for me because nobody's repping in my experience you know night train by visage i fucking mm. really love that song and yeah. And, and yeah i liked it too i i really liked it at the time um but it's not held up as some sort of great classic of the early 80s so perhaps it is kid stuff but you know i mean what else have we got in this episode well, in the interest of fairness, first of all, I don't think you could, I should say, I don't think you can blame David Bowie for any of this any more than if some idiot jumps out of a window thinking they can fly, you can blame Superman. Mm. Um, and in some ways... Or Robert Wyatt, yeah. yeah. In some ways, I do admire his bloody-minded refusal to accept that he doesn't look very good dressed like this. Mm. And he doesn't really... You know, he's not a mysterious guy. <laughs> and to some extent, you can even almost appreciate the determination to carry on regardless mm. because he has no other musical vocabulary, right? You can feel him thinking, no, no, I've allowed this to mean everything to me. I I can't do anything else now, mm. you know. I can't get a job in a pet shop. Um, and it's a bit of a grey area because we do need people who think like that. Yeah. Even if we don't necessarily need this, you know. I don't know. It's like all those people. You know, you read those interviews with rock stars and they say, oh, I never did any work at school. I never went and got a job because I knew that I was going to make mm. it. I never doubted myself. And, of course, you're not hearing from a representative cross-section of everyone who's ever said that hmm. because nobody's ever bothered to interview 99% of the cunts. Mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah, I don't know. But I also, I do feel bad for Steve Strange because at some point he rang up Midgeur and said, okay, fucker, what's next? Uh. And Midgeur said, yeah, I'm in Ultravox now, bye. Yeah. And he was sort of left stranded on a bit of floating ice like a climate-changed polar bear. You mean nothing to me. Yeah. Can you, can you imagine being dependent on Midgeur? <laughs> Fucking hell. With his one-ounce moustache. Fuck mm. In fact, was anyone with a standalone moustache any good? <laughs> I mean, but if you once you rule out some eighties soul singers who did one good single, right? Who is that? Prince, uh, Lee Hazelwood when he looked like John Alderton, um, <laughs> Paul McCartney when he looked like John Alderton, um, John Lennon when he looked like a Victorian doctor. Mm. Um, and who else have you got? There's Hitler, uh, Stalin, Ewer. Vivstantial. Um, <laughs> Vivstantial. He had a yeah, yeah. But beyond that, Sooness, South Yorkshire Police, <laughs> Mr. Bronson, uh, <laughs> DLT, if you shaved off the rest of his beard and just left the moustache. Uh, <laughs> Dominic Raab, if he grew a moustache. Mm. Um, mm. It's not a happy crew, is it? You've raised the problem with Visage because, you know, they're being pitched as this neo-band, but it's a fucking super group. Yeah. You know, every time Visage come out with a song, the automatic response is, oh, so this wasn't good enough for Ultravox, was it? 
This wasn't good enough for Susie and the Banshees, was it? This wasn't good enough for fucking magazine, for folks' sake. <laughs> yeah, but their impact relies on my... <laughs> not me, but their impact relies on our ignorance to a certain extent. You know, I didn't know any of that. You know, mm. when I heard the name Visage, and the, the only thing that I associated it with was Steve. So, you know, all of the yeah. rest of it, I, I didn't know or care about, to be honest with you, at the age of at the age that I was. Mm. So, yeah. But, you know, fuck it. What would you sooner have on Top of the Pops in 1981? This or status quo? <laughs> or shaking Stevens? There's lots of quo. You know There's what I mean? There's lots of good records in this chart this week that don't get on. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and there's lots of shit records to get on. Now, um, we may yeah. disagree about the shitness of this record. I quite like it. This is using Top of the Pops time much better than an awful lot of other things on this episode. Mm. Yeah, I agree with all that. And, and you know, he's dead now, so God bless him and everything. Mm. And better to do this than, than to just sit in carefully, of course. Just don't make me listen to Mind of a Toy by the Visage <laughs> again. <laughs> I'm just thinking a sweet playing a synth with a moustache now. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Mind of a Tour soared 10 places to number 14 and a week later would nip up to number 13, its highest position. The follow-up, Visage, would spend two weeks at number 21 and they'd have two more hits with skirted the top 10 with the damn don't cry night train but diminishing returns set in. It became impossible to get the band members together as they were already committed to Ultravox, Susie and the Banshees and Magazine and they split up in 1985. Strange resurrected the Visage brand in 2002 in order to get in on the Here and Now Heritage Festival Bonanza and put out the LP Hearts and Knives in 2013, but he died of a heart attack in Egypt in 2015. What about Ron Mayle? Yeah! Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whole argument in pieces. (laughs) (laughs) When a child throws down a toy, spiteful girl, hateful boy. Mitchell, Rusty, against Steve Strange, and the crew make up Visage, Mind of a Toy. Top of the Pops is about charts, and charts exactly what we're going to take a look at now, starting with the top 30. At 30, what becomes of the broken-hearted Dave Stewart and Colin Blundstone? At 29, rock this town from the Stray Cats. At 28, can you feel it, the Jacksons? At 27, it's Madness, and return to Lost Palm at 7. At 26, it's a love thing, the Whispers. At 25, Intuition from Lynx. At 24, Mind of a Toy, Visage. At 23, Hot Love from Kelly Marie. At 22, I Surrender, it's Rainbow. And at 21, it's Einstein and Gogo from Landscape. And at number 20, it's Planet Earth from Duran Duran. Now, with his jacket off and flung casually over his shoulder, stands next to the video screen with the charts in the top of the Pops font emblazoned upon it. He reminds us that Top of the Pops is all about the charts and runs them down from 30 to 21. 
Azia lights on the number 21 single, Einstein and Go-Go. The fist punches the air once more in anticipation, but Top of the Pops doesn't run videos back-to-back just yet. So we're hit with a photo of the next band, who all look as if they're saying, Tonight, Matthew, we're going to be Japan. <laughs> it's Duran Duran with Planet Earth. Why wasn't it fucking Einstein a go-go, man? <laughs> We've done Duran Duran loads on chat music and this is where it all began with their debut single it's the lead-off cut from their first lp duran duran which will be coming out in june and it took three weeks to enter the chart at number 67 late last month but while it took another three weeks to meander up to number 47 it was seized upon and played out by none other than radio one's man at cna peter powell leading to their debut performance on the show helping it to soar 21 places to number 26 this week it's moved up six places to number 20 so here's another repeat from top of the pops a fortnight ago and sadly chaps one thing hurl has already done in his reformation is sort out the band and artist pictures which has taken out a lot of the fun of it for us isn't it yeah boo yeah yeah although i i like how they show that publicity picture of duran duran for a few seconds at the start of this yes and just for a moment you think they might just leave that on the screen and play the record (laughs) over it which would have been brilliant it's a pretty bad photo of duran duran isn't it i mean it's possible Possibly the one image that cemented the incorrect aspersion that Simon Le Bon was a bit of a fat bloater. Because he's got his bandolero over a billowy white shirt, making it look like he's got a beer gut. I mean, he effectively looks like <laughs> Sancho Panza about to play for the bronze bullet. <laughs> I mean, when we flick over to see the band in action, you know, he's got some very tight PVC trousers on, mm. so he's slim enough. I mean, looked at purely visually, they're not the way they're going to end up looking yet. Yeah. On this showing they really need to go back to the bedrooms and put more work in on their girls world heads because on this showing in 1981 they're pretty much the new street station dolls aren't they chaps (laughs) (laughs) no they look sort of more I don't know proto goth and you romantic but I mean really they are exactly as they are in the video for this song right albeit with Le Bon not wearing the pirate pantaloons that he wears in that video and Rhodes Mm. has got a different hair colour in the video as well he's blonde uh, in, right. on, in the top of the pop studio rather than ginger and of course we don't have any of those odd captions that the video has about the surface area and the population of the planet and the oldest song in the world being the shadoof chant and all of that nonsense that happens in the video <laughs> but, you know as a package this appearance is astonishingly accomplished mm. For a band, I mean, they don't. Mm. They'd only hired Lebon about a year ago, and they're already yeah. sort of talking in interviews, but looking, yeah, starish. Mm. Although I, I think that this little Lord Fauntleroy look that they had at this time is not the best. <laughs> it's a bit lacking because it infantilizes them, and that wasn't their thing, right? They're not meant to look like boy princes. Their appeal was that they were young adults, and they were sort of a little mm. bit sexy and mm. druggy, you know, living mm. it up. That was their real-life appeal, but it was also yeah. baked into the image and the way they sold them. They never did that Osmonds or Rollers thing of condescending to their audience. Mm. You know, they were like the musical equivalent of calling the magazine just 17 so that 13-year-olds would read it. And the mm. idea of them being adults and men of the world was kind of aspirational in itself so when you see them dressed like 
you know, when did you last see your father? It's it's just sort of wrong. It doesn't sit right, especially not on Simon Le Bon, who has that mm. big flat dog face, which could never look delicate or sensitive. <laughs> they do suffer in comparison to Steve Strange on this episode of Top of the Pops, particularly as he is dressed as a little Lord Fauntleroy. Mm. But it's very clear that Top of the Pops likes the cut of this band's jib. Yeah. This is a repeat of a couple of weeks ago, but it appears that that week's audience are a bit older and savvier than the gormless use in visors that we get this week, because you can see them on the side fucking loving this tune, yeah. bouncing up and down like bass well, you know, pop radio, pop television is never going to have a problem with Duran. They're not a challenge, really, Duran. Mm. They're funny in interviews at this time because they're always slagging off Spandau and, and they're always mm. slagging off the London scene, calling it kind of tense, where in Brum it's more of a release, they say, at the Rum Runner than it is at the Blitz. Right, yeah. They're very sort of unproblematically about entertainment. Mm. I, I'm not saying they've not got big ideas, but it's very telling that in interviews at the time they, they talk about how they think melodies have gone missing in the last three years of British pop mm. and how they want to bring that back a little bit. So they're much less of a kind of foreboding proposition than Visage, for instance. And this is why they're going to be bigger than Spandau. They're going to be bigger than anyone because they're literally, it's a ghastly phrase, but they are, as they used to call themselves, techno rock. They're a little bit proggy about their music. Mm. They love Gabriel era Genesis. They say that's a big influence. Mm. And, and it's that progginess that accounts for some of the slaggings that the debut album gets so consequently you know that nobody's going to have a problem with duran so when new romanticism blows itself out they're still going to be around because mm. they're working always towards how can i put it new songs new hits rather than just new sounds yeah and as listeners and music makers they're interested in music at its point of consumption they have no sort of lofty demands of pop when you think about the other bands in the midlands at this point um seeing as you know this is team atv land mm. dexy's specials um serious bands it's not just that Duran don't sound like those bands they unproblematically want to be massive and they have no problem with being stars and no desire really to use stardom as a platform for something else or being a mouthpiece for something else mm. biggest band from Brum since Sabbath yeah <laughs> really I mean the Midlands is a shithole in 1981 oh yeah you know it really is dying industry just everywhere and, and you know absolute crumbling infrastructure and everything else um, and yet still it, largely it, Tory yeah yeah. That's the depressing yeah. thing about <laughs> yeah, yeah. the Midlands that we yeah. don't like to talk about. Like the North responded to its uh, emasculation by like never voting for the Conservatives ever again until Brexit. Mm. The Midlands yeah, yeah. has always been Tory and and right of Tory. Like where I come from, right? You mm. know, oh, yeah, where I was born, around sort of West Bromwich, Smethwick, and Tipton and stuff. Fucking BMP NF oh, Heartland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a really depressing thing about the Midlands. Yeah. I think, but might be the inferiority complex of the region weirdly enough that it never wants to stand up to the government and say hang on you're fucking taking the piss mm. here yeah yeah something yeah. quite I mean, servile about midlands the people. west midlands is it's fucking enoch land, yeah. isn't it? i mean when you think about what happens in smathic and stuff i mean yeah, durant yeah. that durant biggest band from brum since sabbath but unlike sabbath of course they're studiously determined in a way only to reflect their surroundings in their sense of aspirational escape yes. durant music does not sound like it's from birmingham really <laughs> no, no. it sounds like it's made for a nightclub and it wants to stay in that nightclub really mm. and, and and in interviews they talk about pleasure and entertainment and product as being what they want to create there, there, there's actually a really good quote from a, I think it's Paul Morley interview 
Julia 1981, where, where they talk about how we have a responsibility. I think it's Nick Rhodes who says it. He says, we have a responsibility not to tell them things. When he's talking about the audience, he's saying he wants to keep them ignorant in a sense when it comes to <laughs> politics because they're young, their audience, you know. But that escapism that I think is inherent to the Duran and, and why they appeal so so big is it, it eventually does start smelling quite Thatcherite by the mm. time of, say, Rio. But at this point, it's still just, it's kind of just a little purer, I mm. guess. So I, I don't have any problems with this. Yeah, they were never, like, flying the flag for Birmingham, no. that's for sure, <laughs> through yeah, Bermuda. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah, not yim-yam, yeah. yim-yam. Um, <laughs> but in a way, that's the most Birmingham thing about yeah, them. Completely. Yeah, like, completely. But, yeah, Top of the Pops have really pushed out the boat for them. You know, not only do we get that stop-motion effect that the punk bands used to get, but they also get a proper massive globe hanging down as opposed to the scotch egg that Legs and Co had to deal with. <laughs> and they can do it. They can fill out that stage. Mm. I mean, you think about other bands, and never mind sort of electro-pop or anything else, you think about other bands, given that space and what they'd fill it with, there would be no one <laughs> You know, I, I think of something like OMD or something, you know, yeah. something that was contemporaneous. Always just looked like, yeah, indie kids given a pop stage and consequently the discomfort was part of the enjoyment. Mm. But Duran already look like a stadium band, do you know what I mean? Mm. It, it's mad how developed they are yeah, at this yeah. very early point. Mm. Yeah, there's a few gigs of theirs on YouTube from around this time that were on telly and stuff. And they're more like big country or something <laughs> yeah. than visage. You yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They're like they're a real. They got dry ice going, and they've all got their guitar techs hanging around and stuff. It's a uh, yeah, it's rock. They're proper rock, mm. and it, it's hardly an original observation. But I quite like the fact that they based almost their entire catalogue on late seventies mm. Roxy music and almost nothing else. Mm. And Japan, mm. right? Mm. It's like those are the only records they've ever heard. It struck me while I was listening to this. It's like, fucking hell, this is Atomic by Blonde. Oh, it is a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Perhaps down to the bass playing. Mm. The, the bass playing needs noting. I didn't notice it at the time because I was a little kid. But the bass playing raises them above a lot yeah. of other things, I think, Duran. It's really, really good. Yeah. yeah. I didn't mind that when this came on the radio, it was like, oh, it's this. It's all right. Mm. I didn't mind it, which was a massive achievement when you look at what they look like with the roofs and everything. Yeah. Well, their ubiquity hadn't started chafing on your tit ends yet. I mean, that yeah. starts happening soon, but at this yeah. stage it hasn't. I yeah. think what it is, is that, first of all, they demonstrate a lot of sort of energy and personality of their own. And somehow they give you the impression that they're grinning at you, even as they've got their pouts fixed tight. You know what I mean? Mm. I think that's why people are sort of forgiving of Duran Duran and give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, they skate, mm. they always skate, and with distinction, like a, a five-headed <laughs> Robin Cousins. Because um, <laughs> if you're a pop star and what you do just works, you can get away with anything, you know, like in terms yeah. of, Theft. I mean, my God, the greatest pop stars are the greatest thieves, you know. Would Mark <laughs> Boland ever have written those lyrics if he had never heard Sid Barrett singing, send a cage through the post, make your name like a ghost? But who cares? <laughs> you, you can't sit around drumming your fingers and waiting for musical abiogenesis, you know. And when your aesthetic is trashy enough, you don't even have to wait for an original thought. You just need a spark. And for me, that's what's missing from Visage. But it's there in Duran Duran. They've got a spark, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Anything else to say about this? No, but the episode, for me, has suddenly got good. 
So, the following week, planet Earth jumped eight places to number 12, its highest position. As discussed in chart music number 39, EMI then forced them into putting out Careless Memories as the follow-up, which only got to number 37 for two weeks in May. But the ship was righted when they went with the band's original choice and put out Girls on Film, which got to number five in August. Stupid EMI. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And their debut album will be due out soon. Right, let's go back to the charts. At 20 is Planet Earth from Duran Duran. At 19, Somebody Help Me Out from Beggar & Co. At 18, Stevie Wonder. And lately, at 17, it's Jones vs. Jones. Cool on the gang. At 16, Once in a Lifetime, Talking Heads. At 15, Please Don't Touch, Motorhead and Girls School. At 14, it's Phil Collins, I Missed Again. At 13, it's Kiki D and Star. At 12, Something Bad You Baby, I Like, Status Quo. And at 11, it's Southern Freeze and Freeze. But now we go to number 8, and here's Toya. It's a mystery. Back to POW with some youths but with no jacket as he's draped it over the shoulders of his pick of the litter, the lucky lady. He then shoves us into the second part of the chart rundown from 20 to 11 before introducing It's a Mystery by Toya. We covered Toya Wilcox and her band of Kens in chart music number 36, and this, her sixth single release, is the follow-up to Danced, her live single which got to number seven in the independent charts in July of 1980. It's the main cut from the EP4 from Toya, which immediately rose to the top of the indie chart when it came out in the first week of February, but it also marked her first dent on the proper chart when it entered at number 59, on Valentine's Day. 
The following week, it jumped 17 places to number 42, which gave Michael Hill all the incentive he needed to get her into the top of the pop studio. And the following week, it soared 16 places to number 26. A week later, it jumped 10 places to number 16, and a repeat of the first performance was trotted out again. And this week, it's nudged up three places from number 11 to number 8. And here she is in the studio so chaps off you go well you know different strokes for different folks it it takes all kinds of people to make what life's about um you know even if you don't like toya i think you can agree that um you know music's the real winner here Mm. yeah i mean toya may not be to everyone's taste but these things are subjective and she obviously worked very hard on her music and this may not be the kind of thing that i'm into but i imagine if you are into this kind of thing it's probably a very good example of this kind of thing so who am i to criticize it anything else to say no no so the following week four from toya jumped four places to number four its highest position the follow-up i want to be free would get to number eight in june and she'd close out 1981 with thunder in the mountains getting to number four in october No, 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 no. We're not done. We're not done. Come on, let's do this properly. Dad. Oh, can I also say, I think most of the people who want to knock Toya are probably just jealous of her success. (laughs) It's either that or they can't handle a strong woman who doesn't pander to men. Mm. You know, any Nina Simone, Jodie Mitchell or Betty Davis fans who knock Toya, I think they're just revealing themselves as sad little men. (laughs) It's the only possible explanation. Now then, pop craze youngsters, you're going to be shocked and appalled by what I'm about to impart to you, but impart it I must. You'll recall a while back that Taylor and Neil here delivered a comprehensive coat down of I Want To Be Free. And when this episode was mooted, I wanted to do 1981, but I let them have their little say and told them to pick the episode out. They really wanted to do The Who and uh, You Bet, You Bet. But it turned out that both of their appearances on Top of the Pops coincided with this fucking single here and when that was made apparent my so-called colleagues claimed that they were all toyed out and went on a work to rule and just wanted to, to say a little bit and move on well you know i can't have that and the pop craze youngsters can't have that either so like all creative industry entrepreneurs faced with the difficult challenges of the age i called upon the services of artificial intelligence went on chat gpt and typed in taylor park's review of toya and neil kukani <laughs> review of toya yeah, you weren't expecting that, was you, lad? Yeah. So, yeah, let's, let's yeah. have a listen to what I said. Neil Kulkarni delivers an enthusiastic review of Toya in his article, commending her for her energy and entertaining performance. <laughs> he praises her ability to connect with the audience and create a memorable experience. <laughs> Cool Carney notes that her set list includes plenty of hits, but also showcases her lesser-known tracks, which he found to be a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Overall, he describes the concert as a fun and nostalgic experience that left him wanting more. <laughs> yeah. 
Wow, uncanny. <laughs> and I, I didn't say she stank a piss or anything. This no, is amazing. No. Meanwhile, Taylor Parks of the Quietus reviews Toya's 2020 album Posh Pop, describing it as an impressive and adventurous release that defies <laughs> genres and expectations. <laughs> Parks notes Toya's ability to surprise her audience with her range and versatility as a vocalist and praises the album's eclectic production and bold musical choices, including nods to punk, disco and classic rock. Overall, <laughs> Parks regards posh pop as a testament to Toya's enduring creativity and willingness to take risks with her music. <laughs> <laughs> when we're dead and gone that's what's going to be yeah, left yeah yeah no use of the word iconic though yeah what a letdown well we've got standards man yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't enough for me or the pop crazed youngsters so i went back in and typed taylor parks and neil kulkarni review it's a mystery by toya all right so, yeah here we go taylor parks reviewed toya's album it's a mystery no such thing. There never was an album called It's a Mystery. But anyway, you know, let's let's carry on. Describing it as a synth-heavy pop art terrain. <laughs> he praised Toy's ability to mix various musical genres. Here, you're back on that one again, Taylor. Oh, wow. And acknowledged the diversity of tracks, such as the title track and Thunder in the Mountains. Parks remarked on the album's sci-fi soundscapes and commended <laughs> Toya's charismatic and confident singing throughout. Overall, he deemed It's a Mystery as an eccentric, glorious, bizarre wow. pop gem. <laughs> yeah. However, however, there is a difference of opinion here because mm. Neil Kulkarni's take on Toya's album It's a Mystery is less than favourable. <laughs> he deems it a synthetic black hole with cold and vapid vocals that lack emotion or depth. Kulkarni also <laughs> criticised the album's production, calling it suffocatingly slick and lacking in musicality. Overall, he sees the album as a reflection of the shallow, commercialised nature of the music industry in the 1980s. Yeah, man. Oh, AI Neil Kulkarni there trying to make a name for himself. Yeah, you see, uh, nobody tell AI about the word wank snap or I'm fucked. As Dusty Rhodes said, a computer just took your place, daddy. <laughs> I can't believe neither of us called her a songstress. That's the only thing that, that I yeah. noticing. The, the, the Birmingham Sparrow. <laughs> it's a, a bit misogynist, your review there, I thought, Neil. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. you know. Just, the older you get. Yeah. Before we say anything else, I don't know why we're bothering because that I think that said it all. You know. Yeah. Al, do you even need us here? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, man. As soon as AI can develop a yim yam accent, mate, I'm, f I'm fucking laughing. After this episode, I'm going to type out David Stubbs reviews. If I shall fall from grace with God by the popes. Oh, what amazing times we live in! Let me just get this out, and we'll move on. My mate was a stage manager of an open air production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in the nineties, and he says that Toya Wilcox was the nicest actor he's ever come across. There was nothing she wouldn't do. For 
for anyone and he won't have a word said against her so you know that's out there now but mm. but having said that you can be the nicest person in the world but if you turn up on top of the pops and you take up three minutes of top of the pops in order to get on my tits i'm sorry but that gets held against you for the rest of your life mm. and i don't make the rules so here we go well, you know, I just wanted to know the presence of Nigel Glockler on drums here, Ooh. future Saxon drummer. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah, he joins Saxon later this year. Is he the one with the headband on? Aye, aye, Ooh. that's him. <laughs> but even he can't save this. It's fucking horrible. Can I just say, the terrible moment at the start of this, where they do the chart rundown, and yeah. just for a second, you think we might be about to go into Southern Freeze by Yeah. It's like oh, someone right. holding out a big juicy pineapple in front of you and then <laughs> suddenly snatching it away and flicking shit up your nose off a fork. <laughs> I mean, Toy is pretty much one of the first acts to break out of the independent chart ghetto and make it to the big boy charts, along with Joy Division, UB Forte and Depeche Mode. And yes, pop craze youngsters, Toya is the person who uncorked the best pop single in years that should make you feel good about life for about three and a half minutes according to Clive James in next Sunday's Observer fucking <gasps> Australians so yeah this song is as good as watching Japanese lads getting tortured in a game <laughs> show <laughs> that's mental mm. uh. although you know it was kind of mental wasn't it um, not not to rake over our past glories but you know when we last discussed Toya mm. and then I tweeted something I think I think Chart Music tweeted my thing about Giles Brandreth he got back to yes. us didn't he Yes. Yes. <laughs> what did you say? No, was it, if Giles Brandreth Brand was asked to write a, pop, uh, a punk song, yeah, it'd be... Which song was it again we were doing? I Want to Be Free. That's right. Mm. And he, he, he said, yeah, a, a, a classic of its kind, I mm. think. He, he, he tweeted back. Yeah. Interaction from the brand. The jumper man himself. Indeed. Toya's getting a lot of praise in the media at the minute, but mainly the London media, because Jim Cusack, who does a column called Rock in the Belfast (laughs) Observer, offers a different take in his article a few months from now, entitled The Face of Rock or Just a Passing Fad. Just to prove that there is no accounting for taste, tickets for Wednesday's Toya concert in the Ulster Hall seem to be selling like hotcakes. A chart hit, It's a Mystery, is no doubt an important contributive factor, but apart from this song and a couple of other forgettable numbers, Toya has little to recommend her as an important rock performer. She is, in fact, a bit like Hazel O'Connor in that she is a figure the London media have seized upon as the modern face of rock music. But Toya is more a media event than a rock artist. I thought everyone would have had enough of her by now because of all the coverage she was receiving a couple of months ago. She actually had a one-hour TV documentary and received endless praise for her seemingly ordinary acting abilities. Anyway, it would be interesting to see how the media image fares as a live artist. The concert is being screened as part of a series on Northern Ireland BBC and this column will be watching carefully to ensure that all that appears on stage appears on screen but then a few days later Mr Cusack was forced to change his tune in the following review Toya entered stage right at the King's Hall last night about 20 foot up some scaffolding 
She was apparently trying to imitate a monkey and grabbed hold of the bars and shook them and displayed other mannerisms associated with caged anthropoids. <laughs> Meanwhile, there was a voice coming out of the PA and a synthesizer somewhere making a growling noise that grew in volume. The voice was going, e e <laughs> The rather tame-looking section of the audience where I was standing was slightly taken aback. Well-bred teenage girls, most of them wearing leg warmers, looked around quizzically at their boyfriends, unsure if this was not all a bit weird for a Wednesday night. But within a minute or two, Toya began a more normal stage show, shaking a wonderful head of orange hair, and within a number or two, the show was fairly cracking along. Toya has, in cabaret talk, a real belter of a voice, and the band, who seemed a bit ordinary at the start, were soon showing some rare talent. It really became a good rock show. <laughs> the only things that really jarred were the sound and stage set. The echo near the back of the hall was unique in my experience, and the stage set looked like a really bad night on Blake 7. Yeah, try and copy that <laughs> AI, you cunt. <laughs> But the song, chaps. Mm. I mean, really, it just sums up Toya in one go, doesn't it? Something that's been presented as punk or post-punk, but is actually really fucking proggy. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, the trouble is, she's that worst thing. She's mm. a contrarian pop star. The, you know, the, the, the one that if they're annoying you, they see that as more grist to the mill as proof that she's on the right track. And this song, she, she moans about this song that, you know, she didn't like it at first because she was... She, she's got the fucking gall to say, you know, she was losing her punk roots <laughs> for this song. You know, it's too poppy and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, but I think it's probably her most annoying one. Mm. Um, the shot in the dark line. There's lots of annoying moments in this. Mm. And, you know, the, it's weird with Toya because she's one of those where an awful lot of the attention she was getting was quite positive. But there's just, it needs pointing out, there's, there's, there was so many people, so many of us sat at home just fucking hating her. Mm. Come on, Taylor. <laughs> Oh, well, all I can give you is this article from the Sunday Mirror in uh, June 1981 uh, from the Star Time section. Again, the Sunday Mirror gets the big exclusive, it says. What disgusts Toya in top pop? I don't know what that means. (laughs) Her hair and clothes have stamped Toya unmistakably as a fashion leader. Quote, People see me and think I'm thick. Some silly tart who dyes her hair different colours, she said. But it takes guts because I can't walk down the street without being laughed at or thought cheap. Mm. I want other kids to have the courage to do what they want to do. So what if she dyes her hair? (laughs) She's still got a brain up there. (laughs) Her hair is currently sunshine gold, a colour fans can copy using Toya's crazy colour hair colouring at £3 a bottle. Mum, it burns. I use the stuff myself, Toya said. Her style may be outrageous, but her opinions are not. Morally, I'm very strict, she said. The promiscuous side of the music business disgusts 
disgusts me mm. i have seen a lot of women get emotionally mixed up because of sleeping around they cheapen themselves mm. so yeah down with people having the courage to do what they want to do yes she also believes in capital punishment and <laughs> castration for rapists <laughs> I have no compassion for anyone like that. She says, well, you know, yeah, people like Peter Sutcliffe, who should be put to sleep by an injection. I'm too bitter to write songs about it at all. Uh, well, yeah, okay. Doesn't Toya go on in interviews that, you know, whenever she's backstage and there's some girl chatting up the sexy, virile members of her backing band, uh, she slaps them about? yes. <laughs> she boasted of this. Yeah, that's not on, is it? I mean, fucking hell. I mean, if we were doing a live show, right, and Sarah was standing at the bar and some bloke was just talking to her and saying hello and everything, and I just went up to him and fucking lamped him, that that, that, mm. that made me a right cunt, wouldn't it? It made, made you a gentleman, Al. <laughs> no, yeah, I forgot, yeah. From the Daily Mirror, Ooh. Thursday, February the 26th, 1981. After Punk... Meet the girl on the crest of a new wave. Ooh. Toya is a bit of a funny name, so her close friends call her Toilet. <laughs> That's the opening line. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and the in-crowd trendies have nicknamed her <laughs> Toyota. Ooh. Her rather posh mum, no kidding, from the better side of Birmingham, probably Oh, there's a better she... side of Birmingham, is there? <laughs> Have you not been to the worst side of Birmingham? <laughs> fuck it It's up. called Coventry, isn't it, Neil? Oi, fuck up. <laughs> Cheeky cunt. It probably wishes she'd christened her Beryl and saved herself a lot of sleepless nights. It would have been tough for a girl called Beryl to dye her hair tangerine and yellow, leave home with just a carrier bag, immediately land starring roles in big films and host her own chat show all before her 22nd birthday but i don't know why but mm. toya toilet toyota wilcox did just that and more <laughs> and then there's a bit where they ask for her opinions of the other women who seem to be making it in the 80s mm. because if you're a woman and you're successful it's only natural you would want to bitch about all the other women who are successful mm. my publicist says i shouldn't put other artists down but really i think honesty is the best policy yeah. so hazel o'connor I like her as a person, but frankly, I'm insulted being compared to her. She's not very original. <laughs> Debbie Harry. She's beautiful, and I don't see why she shouldn't exploit that. She's got some good people working for her. Jesus. <laughs> Paulie Yates. I think she regrets doing all that nude stuff. I did a photograph once with a nipple hanging out, painted black for a laugh. I couldn't believe it when people were shocked. <laughs> and those are all the women. That, yes, that was, there's obviously no other successful women in the eight. No. Just uh, Hazel O'Connor, Debbie Harry and Paulie Yates. Well, I mean, far be it for me to tell Toya how to be a good feminist. But she's got a sort of bit of that in a lot of interviews. I, I read one where she, you know, she was talking about kind of what made her want to go to drama school and stuff. And she, she says, you know, seeing scores of teenage girls pushing prams around Birmingham on a Saturday morning affected me. I'd rather have died than gone through that. Ooh. I mean, 
You know what I mean? Am I am I the only one to detect something wrong about saying that? It just seems she's slightly scorned. I mean, in a class sense, she's very scornful. This article finishes. She lives in a huge flat in Hendon, North London, where she moved to recently from a weird warehouse home in Battersea. Her remaining ambition is to be a goddess, to be <laughs> worshipped. Quote, that's what it takes to have a guaranteed commercial audience for the rest of my life. <laughs> or what about just being dead good? Mm, yeah. What you well, do, come on, sorry. come on. You know, but you can't ask for the world. <laughs> but yeah, 1981 is the year of Toya, and she would end it like all good 80s pop stars. And if you had little sisters and they'd been nice all year, there's a reasonable chance that they'd be getting a little Toya in their stocking this Christmas. Article in the Birmingham Evening Mail in November. Birmingham's trend-setting Toya Wilcox has gone into the beauty business. Already a fashion leader in her own right, the star of stage, screen and disc has dreamed up a makeup range that's good quality and low price, theatrical and great fun. Under the banner Soul Reflectors, there's a kit of four different coloured eye shaders and another kit of two face shaders, while there's also a duo pack of two bottles of nail paint called man scratchers <laughs> uh, still available now on ebay recommended retail price 11.99 <laughs> soul reflectors mm. why do i see nothing <laughs> the oh. last time we covered toya chaps i did ask the question who the fuck is buying this and, mm. and who the fuck are our audience and then afterwards it just hit me Adrian Mole, who yes. charts a rise and fall perfectly. Yes. On November the 19th of this year, he compiles a list of suitable names for his new baby sister, which include Diana, Pandora and Toya. <laughs> then there's this diary entry from December the 12th. My mother has gone out with Mrs. Singh, Mrs. O'Leary and her women's group to have a picnic on Greenham Common. She has taken Rose so the house is dead peaceful. I played my Toya records at full volume and had a bath with the door open. <laughs> but then, on Tuesday, April the 12th, 1982, after his run away from home and come back in distress, he writes, Nigel has just left after trying to arouse me by playing my favourite Toya tapes at a discreet volume. I signalled that I would prefer both his and Toya's absence mm. how the mighty fall indeed you know where toya's makeup was available go on it was marks and sparks really Toy- yes it was marks and spencer which is a bit upmarket for her yeah. fan base mm, i'd say thoughtless of her. yeah i thought you should sell it on the street from a, a a cart fashioned out of the carved out anus of a rotting <laughs> cow <laughs> So, the following week, four from Toya jumped four places to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, I Wanna Be Free, would get to number eight in June, and she'd close out 1981 with Thunder in the Mountains getting to number four in October, and the EP Four More from Toya spending two weeks at number 14 in December. But her first single of 1982, Brave New World, only got to number 21 in June of 1982, and diminishing returns set in rapidly. Coincidentally, around 
around the time that she co-starred in the BBC Two sketch show Dear Heart with B.A. Robertson. What a combination. (laughs) What a shame Paul Nicholas wasn't in it as well, man. Four from Toya, that's a track called It's a Mystery. All right, we take a look at the top ten best-selling singles this week. It's a not-so-bad. Dance. Hey. Joe Dolce, and I'll shut up in your face. Up seven and nine is for who? And you better, you bet. Three and eight, you saw on the show. It's four from Toya, It's a Mystery. Toya. Good for us. Down three, alas, at number seven, Ultravox oh, and the Magnificent Fiesta. Oh, magnificent. Oh. <laughs> I ain't been right all the time. Yay! Yeah! Seven at six, go Teardrop Explodes, and their reward. No change of heart. Oh, why is this on? Coast to coast. <laughs> <laughs> hey! And they number one, down two and four. It's Kings of the Wild Frontier, Adam and the Axe. For her first single, she's up three and three. Yes. It's in America, it's Kim Wilde. You just hear the sound of Shaky's piss trickling down the outside wall. <laughs> <laughs> And up uh, five and two, this good old rock and roll, Shaking Stevens, good this old, old house. house. <laughs> Ooh, careful with that act, Shaker. <laughs> and just before we get to that big number one, let me say the Radio 1 on mass is going up to Scotland, starting on Sunday with a football match. Hope very much to see you there. Hope you've enjoyed Top of the Pops. Great audience tonight. And to celebrate the fact that Roxy Music have their first ever number one, it's been there for two weeks, and it's a great song. Till next week, good night. Here's Jealous Guy. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs> How? Now surrounded by the girls in the previous link, as well as a couple of unruly youths, including one who pretends to chew gum behind Powell's shoulder, drags us through the top ten. Almost all of them have videos apart from poor old Coast to Coast, who have to make do with a publicity shot and the cover of Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants. Mm. Yeah, that top ten, chaps, it gives us further proof that the 70s are still langing about because I noticed not only one but two songs with a liberal deployment of the word, hey, (laughs) you can't get rid of hey. You just can't. Yeah. I still contend that every song in the world would be massively improved if there was a <laughs> hey or seven in them. Yeah, as long as you put it in the right place, unlike J- Joe Dolce's audience, who, despite the fact oh. that he's told them exactly when they should say hey, proceed yeah. to do it at the end of every line, which is not yeah. what he said. They got it completely wrong. Well, he should have known what he was letting himself in for there. Yeah, and it, it's doubly bad because it's not even a real audience. It's Joe Dolce's band in the studio pretending to be an audience and then double tracked <laughs> so there's just no excuse and Ark at Powell's Italian accent for that yeah. he was well Wario on Mario Kart 64 <laughs> wasn't he okay. uh, it's a me Peter Powell I'm a gonna win <laughs>
He's a spicy meatball. <laughs> As we cut back to Powell, who we now discover is sitting with the audience, with his best girl still wearing his jacket, and the unruly youth still building their part up by pushing about, gurning, and in one case, pointing a finger at Powell's head, he introduces <laughs> this week's number one, Jealous Guy by Roxy Music. Born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1955, Mark David Chapman was the son of a staff sergeant in the US Air Force and a nurse who was relocated to Decatur, Georgia in his teens, where he got jesus up. After working in a YMCA summer camp as a counsellor, where he read J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye and thought it was dead good, he then moved to Chicago and effectively became the American Sid Little, playing guitar (laughs) and singing in clubs while his mate did impressions. After working in Arkansas counselling Vietnamese refugees and a spell working for World Vision in Lebanon, he enrolled into a Presbyterian college in Georgia but dropped out after one semester and eventually wound up in Hawaii where he tried to commit suicide in his car but the end of the hosepipe attached to the exhaust melted. He ended up working at the hospital where he was treated for clinical depression as a janitor, went on a trip round the world in 1978, returned to Hawaii and got married there in 1979 and took up a new hobby of fantasising about killing someone famous. He compiled a hit list which is alleged to have included Jacqueline Onassis, Paul McCartney, Elizabeth Taylor, Johnny Carson, George C. Scott, Ronald Reagan and David Bowie, but one stood out among the rest, John Lennon, who Chapman read about in an article in Esquire in October of 1980 that documented his four mansions, his yacht, his private beach in Florida and his collection of 250 dead expensive cows and deduced that he was a massive sellout man. (laughs) He flew to New York in October of 1980 with the intent of doing him in, but nipped over to Atlanta to pawn some ammo off his mate. And when he went back, he went to see the Robert Redford film Ordinary People at the Pictures and changed his mind and went back to Hawaii. But on the 6th of December, he flew back trying to pick between killing Lennon or jumping off the Statue of Liberty. Finally, on the 8th of December, he stopped pissing about and did it, giving Lennon's solo career a massive boost, British people a golden opportunity to coat down Americans for all being mad bastards and absolutely ruining the British charts for months. Just like starting over, which dropped 11 places to number 21 the day after the murder, soared to number one the following week before immediately giving way to there's no one quite as racist like grandma by the St. Winifred School Choir. (laughs) But Apple responded by rushing out Happy Christmas, War is Over, which got to number three on the Christmas chart of 1980, and Imagine, which entered the chart at number nine on the same week and began a four-week stand at number one. In the last week of January, when we were already lending out to fuck, Geffen put out the true follow-up to Just Like Starting Over, Woman, which crashed into the chart at number three, and a fortnight later usurped Imagine and spent two weeks at number one. 
Just when we thought it was all over, when woman was toppled by Shut Up Your Face by Joe Dolce Music Theatre, another Lennon song entered the charts at number 21, a cover of a track from his 1971 LP Imagine by Roxy Music, who were Roxy fucking music, who were touring <laughs> West Germany at the time and immediately added it to their set as a tribute and then put it out as the follow-up to the same old scene, which got to number 12 in November of 1980. A week later, after a screening of the video on Top of the Pops, it soared 15 places to number six. And last week, it rose from number three to the very toppermost of the poppermost, slapping away everyone's favourite Italio-Austral singer-songwriter. This is its second week at number one, and here's the video again. Past, it's mad, isn't it? Past six number one singles. Yes, Neil, let's imagine the number ones of early 1981 with no dead John Lennon. It's easy if you try. So, stop the cavalry for one week, ant music for two weeks, in the air tonight for two weeks, Vienna for one week, shut up your face for three weeks, as it was, and Kings of the Wild Frontier for one week. That is Two number ones ripped out of the hands of Adam and the Ants because some fucking tubby mentalist was allowed to have a gun. <laughs> Thanks, America. It's mad. Lennon novelty. Lennon, Lennon, novelty, Lennon. It's the yeah. past six number one singles. And it's it's a slight shame, really. I, this is Roxy's first number one, isn't it? I know. <sighs> Which is a shame. What else is a shame, Neil? That this is our first dig into Roxy music and it's not mad arty genius Roxy or Monte Carlo disco Roxy. Both both of which would have been an absolute joy to tuck into, but yeah. Lick and Pigridge rocks there with their single <laughs> I Remember Johnny Lennon. Oh, wow, I love to hear him sing. Uh, yeah. I mean, by this time we were thoroughly Lennoned out, but the music industry was still churning it out. You know, Woman Still Malingering at number 32, Walking on Thin Ice by Yoko Ono's dropped five places to number 40, DJM have rushed out Elton John's live cover of I Saw Us Standing There when Lennon made a guest appearance in an encore in 1975 and we're a month away from watching the wheels coming out and I don't know about you but as a pop crazed youngster of the time I felt that we were being told that all this classic material was better than all the shit I listened to by bent cunts who aren't fucking real and and this puts a tin lid on everything doesn't it yeah yeah I don't trust this bloke his eyes are too close together (laughs) yeah No, first of all, this is the worst Roxy Music single and possibly the worst Roxy Music track just because mm. it is what it is, a dropping of character yeah. behind which there's very little character because it's mostly a sincere tribute mm. and sincerity is not what Brian Ferry did well. No. And he's trying to have his cake and eat it here, right? He's honouring the dead legend and at the same time he's still trying to be glassy and gassy and a hundred miles away and i'm not sure you can do those things simultaneously like if it was me you'd just been shot dead i don't think i'd appreciate it you know (laughs) either pay tribute like you mean it or do your own thing either of those is fine you know Mm. the thing is sonically right this version it's kind of immaculate it doesn't mean i like any of it but it's kind Mm. of immaculate it almost seems to create the need for the invention of cds as Mm. you hear it um it sounds very cd-ish 
But the thing is, you know, the, the, I don't know what your thoughts are about the original of this, yeah. um, the John Lennon version. Yeah. I kind of really like the original. It's one of my favourite right. yeah. songs, in yeah. fact. You know, it's one of those songs that percolated over from the kind of Beatles time, because I think he started writing it white album era didn't he really yeah he wrote the music on the white album then he wrote the words mm. in 1971 it has that kind of melodic strength to it and the string arrangements which I'm guessing are by Spectre on the original they're pretty amazing I mean the thing that always made me uncomfortable a little bit about the original was that lyrically it came across as the, the you know it's the talk after she's been given a black eye a little bit mm. and the way that he sees the song out because he goes watch out doesn't he yeah, in the original, yeah, yeah. watch out. He goes, look out, baby, indicating that the, the relationship is kind of ongoing. You don't really get that in this version. This feels like this person has already left. Yeah. It's sung towards someone who's never coming back. Um, and, and the video accentuates that loneliness, I think, because it, it, it's very close up on Brian and, and in, a, in an almost creepy way. But yeah. It feels like he's singing this walking through a kind of now emptied out living space, knowing that the person he's singing it to will never return. Mm, no more carefree laughter. This is it. Silence ever after. <laughs> But that whistling at the end, you know, which goes on for far too long, it's almost absurd. Oh, the cowboy shit. It goes from sort of romantic to, I don't know, pathetic almost. <laughs> There's been mm. lots of covers of this song, and this is probably yes. sort of one of the best. But yeah, I mean, at this point, it's galling that Lennon's on sale again, you know? It's, it, it, it's, we've, we've had enough. Yeah. Well, the greatest version of this song by a country mile is Donny Hathaway's live version. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that. But that is, that is amazing. Uh. Yeah, yeah. I take a trad view on this song. To me, this is one of Lennon's greatest ever songs. Right. Because unlike a lot of his emotional stuff, it doesn't just put across raw feelings, which you have to make sense of. It's got a bit of self-awareness. But you can't quite tell the extent to which it not having complete self-awareness is an unreliable narrator device, or if more likely... It's a genuine lack in the 31-year-old man writing the lyrics because, on the one hand, it's like a an ashamed apology song which considers being a dick to your wife or girlfriend as being on a continuum. So the words can cover everything from snapping at them in the car on the way back from Morrison's <laughs> to leaving them in a ditch by the side of the road. And the problem with this song is that he's reached the point of thinking this, but not yet the point of fixing it. Mm. So he's still at that stage mm. of, yeah. oh, sorry, I'm, I'm just a jealous guy. You know, like he's not a psychopath. Yeah. He's not taking any pleasure from being toxic. In fact, it upsets him too. Mm. You know, so his mates might say, say ah oh, that's just john so it's a start but it's not a finish mm. you know mm. and my suspicion is that this is actually the point that lennon was at when he wrote it because that's where a lot of people are at about 30 you know mm. depending on the degree of manipulation and emotional abuse the other half of the partnership is capable of which in his case did appear to be quite a lot even if you don't go so far as believing the albert goldman narrative mm. and you just look at the established facts not the healthiest situation in paradise but Obviously, if there's one singer on earth who's absolutely not going to convey this emotional complexity in their interpretation of the song, it's Brian Ferry. Mm -hmm. You just get this chandelier glimmer, and then when you squint past the light, 
that reptilian coldness which changes the atmosphere of the whole thing completely in a way that's moderately interesting but it doesn't improve the song you know and i never bought his interpretations of other people's songs anyway because it was always like he suddenly missed the point of himself which is the frictionless sound of later period roxy music and the solo brian ferry records suits that unnerving disconnected semi-imaginary world in which that work exists spiritually and it feels like a conceit when you take someone else's song and you deaden it the same way as your own songs because what this record's doing is taking a raw disturbed complex song and treating it the way a 70s Italian horror director would treat the female murder victims. You know, they look immaculately beautiful, lying dead mm. and porcelain mm. white with a perfect drip of crimson blood, you know, empty-headed. And it's always creepy. And I can see that it's a clever and interesting idea to take an agonised song and glaze it when the man who sung it had just died. And, of course, creepy is a big part of Brian Ferry's charm. Mm. Um, And the surface of this track is almost as gorgeous as any of the other near-identical sound worlds that he's strolled through. It just seems a bit forced, and in a way beneath them mm. it's kind of really gutting that this is how we come to Roxy yeah. yes yeah. sorry about that and hopefully at some point we'll get to do Virginia Plain or we'll mm. get to do, do The Strand I mean well, you know we'll even get to do other records that Roxy Music are making in this period mm. I could have had much more fun talking about more than this or something mm. um, yeah, or, oh yeah with him in the white jeans and the gingham shirt yeah. <laughs> although you know listening to this it did remind me of that um you know, the Brian Ferry spaghetti story. So that's always nice to be reminded of that. Go on. Oh, uh, well, someone who was at art school with Brian Ferry remembers him draining a colander of spaghetti over the toilet and accidentally <laughs> sending a sort of big load of the spaghetti into the toilet bowl and just totally unperturbed, just pulling it out and adding it to all the rest of the spaghetti. Oh, oh that was smoothie. <laughs> Renato would never do that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was only 12 at the time, but I remember being really surprised when it turned out that Roxy Music were doing a cover of John Lennon. Because even then, I had them down as a band that were a million miles away from the era of the Beatles. And, you know, even now they hold up as one of those bands who cut through that post-Beatles split-up malaise and, and kicked everything on. So the idea that they were looking back in tribute and, and citing him as an influence, that, yeah, did my head in. Yeah, and it's very explicit. I mean, it says a tribute on the sleeve to the seven inch yes. doesn't it and, and yeah. you do get well, in case you thought they were taking the piss <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think they donated like a lot of it to charity I mean obviously Lennon's estate will have got a lot of the proceeds and the sales of this as well mm. but you know it, you do get McKay and you get Manzarina in the video but um, in, it's much more of a Brian Ferry move than a Roxy move it, it, yes. that's what it feels like to me because obviously he's done albums before full of covers so yeah, yeah this it, it, it's a bit odd and it's a shame that we're, we're coming to it like this it is a great song though because I mean uh, yeah having to do this meant I went back to the Lennon version which I hadn't done in ages and it is it's one of his best I think yeah there's only about three good tracks on the album Imagine which is 
hugely overrated but yeah <laughs> jealous guy is a wonderful and chilling record but it's a right downer to an episode of top of the pops <laughs> that hasn't fulfilled our expectations of a 1981 episode at all has it no and this probably i mean that's precisely what makes this episode quite interesting i mean nothing comes on after it this is the last song of the episode the credits roll over to the bitter end of the credits yeah because how can you follow up to this man the fucking coffin lid's been shut yeah you can't really fade this out and then go anyway we'll be back next week here's do the hucklebuck by coast to coast (laughs) (laughs) hey and it's a fox site better than all those years ago by george harrison which we're going to be treated to in a couple of months oh my god (laughs) yes Mm. (laughs) it's just it's weird seeing roxy doing this because it's such a dull narrative you know the biggest rock star dies and they do a tribute it's because this is the the first band to understand and use postmodernism you know mm. because generally speaking when bands attempt to do that it's really a cop out and they get it all wrong whereas roxy music it was probably only them and david bowie in the 70s who could actually have told you what postmodernism was and they actually mm. understood what they were doing and that approach was what gave them meaning you know, and it's surprising how few bands, even art school educated bands, really understood how to do that. So here they are on top of the pops, and it's like, oh, you know, theatrical tears, the guy's dead, you know, it's just. Mm. Do you think mankind will ever stop going on about the Beatles? Uh, and it is mankind as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, the obsession with Elvis, that's tailed right off. But just when you think the tea bag of the mop fabs has been thoroughly squeezed, some new artifact will pop up and it starts all over again. I mean, I always look at the podcast charts, see how we're getting on. And we're surrounded by Beatles podcasts. A lot of them really fucking good. But it's like, will we ever stop going on about them? No, pop needs a centrality here and there. It needs a canon. Mm. So it's never going to go away no no uh, and, and you know the the only thing that's going to happen is there's going to be more of it yeah um i mean has everything been uncovered about the beatles yet i don't know i'm not sure the best book has ever been written about the beatles yet but i mean no pop needs no, he's that. still writing it <laughs> yeah so our beatles fans will know exactly what i mean <laughs> but no I, I don't think it will and, and it shouldn't do to be mm. honest with you if we could do with a little less i personally think we could do with a little less because uh, you know th- there is that sit down eat your beatles thing yeah and it's funny how other bands i mean for instance the herb and, and and you know the stones don't get that centrality i don't think that the but you know they didn't in our lives when we were growing up they, mm. they're part of the national songbook mm. to, to a deeper extent than any other band you know you did these songs at school mm. you knew them by the time you were 10 you knew a lot of beatles songs whether you liked it or not and there were so them. many others yeah. you hadn't discovered yet yeah yeah, they're the kind of mandatory. They're, they're, they're sort of, yeah, the mandatory if you're British. It's going to rise to a massive peak when McCartney dies. Yeah. Especially if he's the last one to go, but. Yeah. Or even if he isn't. Yeah, it's. I think we could do with a bit less Beatles in the. In as much as the Beatles are now like the royal family of music. Mm. I think we could do with a lot yeah. less of that. But I think we do with a bit more Beatles in the sense of them being smart, intelligent, cynical, imaginative people trying to create something that was really valuable. 
Mm. and you know but without taking themselves seriously in that way while they did it yeah and i think that will only come with new people talking about them rather than the same old fuckers that it always is you know what i mean yeah there's Mm. gonna be bbc4 stuff there's gonna be documentaries and you're gonna see the same old ads different perspective but would be beneficial i think Mm. i think it's just that what i perceive as the bad reasons why a lot of music is made now is the opposite of the reason why the beatles were making music and the way it's done is the opposite of the way the beatles were doing it bring that stuff back make that stuff the standard not the the bit about you know oh look you know paul mccartney's like the fucking paddington bear of music you know so i don't think that helps anybody Mm. especially not paddington bear gotta admit that this lennon deluge of early 1981 it me off the Beatles for quite a few years to the point where when I finally got to listen to um, Sergeant Pepper when I got it out of the library in 1984 I would play it really low on my dad's music centre in absolute terror that someone I know would walk past and catch me listening <laughs> to the Beatles you know what I mean yeah the stock was that low yeah that's what I'm like with Marillion. <laughs> Getting back to the matter in hand, though, I should say, I completely believe in Brian Ferry's work, all of it, right? Even this, which I don't like very much and I don't think works very well. Mm. I believe in it. Even the stuff that you barely notice is there because that really is him, right? He really is that vague and offhand and decorative you know it's Mm. i interviewed him a few years ago yes you did i think probably your badly overwritten article like a lot of my stuff from that time but i was going through a peculiar period but part of the reason for the overwriting is that he had genuinely nothing to say it wasn't a front he wasn't being rude he wasn't tired it wasn't that like daniel powter's confidant he'd had a bad day Mm. it just wasn't there i was prodding him into talking about art right trying to get to all these extraordinary ideas under the surface. But he would only talk in the blandest and most superficial terms. So then I was trying to get him to talk about silly stuff, trying to crack it open a bit. But he's got no sense of humour. So he's very pleasant and obviously intelligent, but he just came across as a man with middle-brow good taste and nothing much else, you know, putting together these records out of complimentary shades of nothing which Mm. uh, as i said at the time sounded like an expensive gas like nothing there at all which is i think is fine right but you're, you're thinking can this really be an accurate reflection of brian ferry who started all this by scattering a million fantastic ideas in intriguing patterns out of his own weird brill creamed head right so something must be going on in there but my speculation now is that sometimes people with a lot of ideas in their head don't really like it and as they get older their ambition is to work towards a quieter mind Mm -hmm. and a state of grace where all these things are in balance and you can just float through your existence Mm -hmm. and maybe that complex network of signs and signifiers which held up early roxy music was really just a ladder on which he could climb out of that into a universe where he didn't have to care anymore, where you can just glide around doing that shrugging palms up dance, you know, eyes screwed up, <laughs> drifting in the clouds of this lush anaesthetized music, you know, and everything's fine. Oh, somebody's hijacking your plane. Yeah, no worry. <laughs> it's like being in heaven. 
to him, maybe. It would be for me. But that would marry the trajectory of the Roxy albums when you think about it. I mean, there's a real dissonance with what you've just said about how he was in an interview. And then you think of, obviously, the, f- the like the first three albums, you think about Simon yeah. as well. I mean, these are dazzling records. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> if you were interviewing him in 73 or something and he was genuinely just that blank, that would be really dissonant because they're full yes. of ideas, those records. Whereas you do get the, yeah. you do get the feeling with late 70s Roxy that, that it's not so much that they're aiming for a purity or a sincerity, but they're aiming for perhaps a little bit more simplicity, perhaps a few less ideas. I think eventually he starts aiming for dignity, right. uh, which is an odd thing to aim for. But yeah, no, that's really interesting that he didn't actually say much. But no. truth be told, it's probably better like that, isn't it? I mean, if he'd have fully explicated all of his ideas, is. What about fox hunting and Brexit? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. you should have just asked him some better questions, Taylor, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. I would have asked him, what's the best out of Whoop Scotty's um, Tasty Tarts Foster Grants and Allied for Carpets for You? Yes. Which one do you look back on with most pride, Brian? <laughs> I was really tempted. <laughs> but the thing is, when you look back, what's the most amazing thing? Is he was there in that period where you could propel yourself from that difficult place to that easier place financially mm. with art yeah. rather than art dealing or mm. financial services or some other branch of the industry of human unhappiness mm. because nowadays you can only really get rich by making less fortunate people unhappy mm. or taking something from them or overcharging them for something and if you want to do something positive or artistic you're expected to do that in your spare time assuming you're allowed any Mm. and it slightly blows the mind to think that in our living memory you could be skint do something purely constructive and creative and made with love and as a result of that end up in a mansion and i don't mean like you know, one American singer or rapper has got 85 private jets and a golden toilet and everyone else in music only eats next week if they can sell five T-shirts after the gig. Mm. In those days, a lot of people made really good money Mm. just from bringing beautiful things into the world. It's like another reality. Mm. But this is always the thing when you look at it, the passage of time, and it it involves moving forwards and backwards at once, like the staircase shot from Vertigo. Mm -hmm. I bet you get somebody else to drain his spaghetti over the bog now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what a shame Mino wasn't still in Roxy Music, because maybe they'd have done Revolution Number 9. This episode would have gone on for another fucking 15 minutes. So jealous guy would spend two weeks at number one before being crushed under the white shot heel of Comrade Shaker and would be their only number one single in the UK. For shame, the follow-up more than this, would get to number six in October of 1982, which was the first cut from their final LP, Avalon, and they split up in 1983. 
Mark Chapman remains incarcerated at the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in New York after 12 denials of parole and his next attempt will be in February of 2024. In none of his many statements at either parole hearings or media interviews has he apologised personally to Adamant or Simon Price for the playground falsehood that he cried when John Lennon died. So as far as I'm concerned, the bastard can fry. (laughs) (laughs) And that, pop craze youngsters, brings us to the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with the fourth episode of their new sitcom com Heidi High Ted can't hear you Heidi High Holy ho where Fred Quilly Bent Jockey is convinced that a betting syndicate is in the camp and about to cut him up proper then it's the second ever episode of Sorry, where Timothy Lumsden gets some aggro from the massive boyfriend of a woman he's knocking about with. After the nine o'clock news, it's the final part of the American TV version of Brave New World. Then the news headlines, question time, the weather and close down at five past midnight. BBC Two has just finished 100 great paintings. Then it's 15 minutes of highlights from the racing at Cheltenham, the documentary In Search of Athelstan, where Michael Wood knocks about a ruined abbey in Wiltshire and bangs on about Smoke King, and the 11th part of the BBC's adaptation of The Little World of Don Camillo, about the communist takeover of a small town in northern Italy. Man Alive looks at how our chances of being killed on the road hasn't changed in 50 years and what the government is doing about it, which is fuck all. Then it's news night and close down at midnight. ITV has just finished the latest episode of Bogner, the drama series about an investigator who works for the Board of Trade. Yeah, I've never seen that programme. All I know is that it's about a man called Simon Bogner. Mm. <laughs> who works for the Department of Trade. Imagine taking that one into a meeting with TV executives. You yeah. Know, I'm pretty confident about this pitch. <laughs> you get a better pitch at the baseball ground in February 1974. Also, according to IMDb, this programme also stars Tim Meats as Lingard. Ooh. Tim Meats. M-E-A-T-S. Tim Meats. <laughs> Then it's the Brian Murphy and Roy Kinnear sitcom The Incredible Mr. Tanner about a couple of down-on-their-look street performers. Yeah, which I watched in preference to Heidi Eye for about three weeks and had no one to talk about it with at school. Yeah, yeah. serves you right. Yeah, it did. TVI investigates the Atlanta child murders. Then it's Hill Street Blues, The News at 10, regional political show in your area. Then Gus MacDonald looks at the pioneers of cinema in camera. Then it's regional news update in your area Lou Grant and close down at 25 to 1 so dear boys what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow uh, Bucks Fizz Bucks Fizz they're going to mm. win they're going to win uh, how come the Who are meant to be mods but they all look like your mate's dad who's got a CB radio <laughs> and also when the men rip the ladies clothes off <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday oh um, not Toya. Obviously, I think I'm buying Duran Duran, um, Visage, Books Fizz, and um, oh, what else? Um, no, that's it. 
<laughs> no, sorry, this old house comrade shaky as well. I'd consider buying Roxy Music, even though it's their worst single, because these things are relative. And the Who, just to keep the faith. And what does this episode tell us about March of 1981? The usual thing that, um, you know the golden golden ages is quite often piss mm. and that the 80s is, is not all going to be a young thrusting decade the old no. fuckers are actually going to have quite a big say as to how the rest of this decade is going to sound oh yes that there was more than one march 1981 although they did happen simultaneously mm. and that pop craze youngsters brings us to the end of this episode of chart music usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p money down the g-string and updates on our live show patreon.com slash chart music thank you taylor parks unless of course you know different God God bless you, Neil Kulkarne. No worries. My name's Al Needham, and if you want to see some more... (laughs) Taylor, you said you'd have pants on. (laughs) Sharp music. On BBC Two Now, Brass Tax reports on the mood of today's university students. Here on BBC One, we go live to the Lyceum Ballroom in London for Miss England 1978. Julie, Miss Norwich. Beverly, Miss Blackburn. Jasmine, Miss Dunstable. Carol, Miss Liverpool North. Susan, Miss Hammersmith. Jackie, Miss Chester. Janet, Miss Scunthorpe. And I'm Jacqueline, Miss Streatham. This is Miss England. Everything about her is lovely. This is Miss England. Looking like a picture of pure sensation. Julie, Miss Birmingham. Patricia, Miss Leeds. Linda, Miss Tottenham. Debbie, Miss Stafford. Debbie, Miss Manchester. Rita, Miss Bournemouth. Angie, Miss Nottingham. And I'm Jill, Miss Sheffield. Miss Newcastle Alison Miss Sunderland Tracy Miss Leicester Debbie Miss Brighton Beverly Miss Southampton Denise Miss Liverpool South Jay Miss Purley and I'm Cara Miss Portsmouth Terry Morgan Good evening and welcome However, lest your senses become drugged with all this talk of beauty here to bring us back to stark reality is the beast Ray Moore People are saying we're in love, you know, Terry Yes, it's just an ugly rumour, though. It's about the only ugly thing here tonight. Miss Blackburn, Beverly Isherwood. Her great passion in life is watching golf. A pretty attractive birdie she is herself, too. Yes, Janet Norris, Miss Scunthorpe, a great musician, very fond of playing the piano. Terry was telling me she's got a lovely touch. Miss Scunthorpe, number seven. And Miss Tottenham, Linda Hart, number 11, used to be a croupier in a nightclub. She's a pretty good bet by the look of it herself tonight. She's 24, by the way. And Susan Cockett, 20 years old, and in fact has been involved in the National Child Development Survey since birth. Developed rather well, I'd have thought, Miss Hammersmith. 
our final two young misses, contestant number 31, Jay Aston, Miss Purley, and number 32, Miss Portsmouth, Karen Palmer. Miss Purley, a rather interesting girl, actually. Jay Aston is her name. She's 17, very keen on weight training. In fact, she picked up a train to get here tonight. And likes jogging with her dog. But at home, she's got thousands of rabbits, she was saying. Doesn't seem to know what's causing them. She's 22 years old and recently appeared on the Generation Game with her father. She wants to go round Brown's Hatch with James Hunt and complete an army assault course. And the following day, she'll have a lie-in. Her wildest ambition in life is to drive a police car, for reasons best known to herself. And she was telling me this afternoon she wants to try and improve her capabilities. They look fine to me as they are. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.